to Mark's gospel once again. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at two key events in the life of Jesus. But here's what we have to do, okay? To know, like, I mean, Matt did an incredible job last week of walking us through the passages that he was assigned. But we actually have to go back and dip into the feeding of the 5,000 um, to understand what Steve just wrote and to understand the disciples' understanding of what just happened. Because here's the deal, as we'll discover, our understanding of the story that we just looked at today, which is this miraculous story of Jesus walking in the water, is, is predicated on the disciples' understanding of what happened in verses 30 through 44 in the feeding of the 5,000. So kind of see what I mean here as we kind of get into this. So um, like as we, as we think about these two key events, right, the, really the, 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 the main thrust of our understanding is found in verse 52 of, of chapter 6. But if you, if you jump back to verse 51, kind of see a picture of this. It says first that they were like utterly astounded, right? So that's the disciples responding to the miracle that Steve just read about here. Um, but we see that their response like is after seeing Jesus walk on the sea, which Listen, if you saw somebody walking on the sea, you probably should be utterly astounded at that. Look back to verse 50, and it says that they were terrified. And then again, in verse 51, we get this implication that they're astonished, that they're confused about what's happening. And then we get to verse 52, where Mark tells us this. In, in verse 52, Mark says, For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So they're terrified by seeing Jesus walk in the water. They're confused or astounded by Jesus walking on the water. Why? Because they didn't understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So, so, so what does Mark mean by the loaves, right? Well, Mark is talking about the passage just before this one. Again, Matt walked us through that brilliantly last week. Um, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast, go to the website, go to YouTube, whatever, and listen to it. And it's the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 with, with five loaves and, and two fish. And the disciples then, in our story, reacted the way they did to Jesus walking on the sea because they didn't understand Jesus feeding the 5,000. Mark makes that like really super clear, right? And here's how that goes. The disciples were utterly astounded by Jesus walking on the sea because they didn't understand the meaning of Jesus feeding the 5,000. So the goal for us today in this sermon is to, to do this, is for us to just understand that, that to make sense of, of why they don't understand, like what does this mean, why is this the case, what, what is God teaching not only them but us through this, and, and then ultimately what can we walk out of here um, understanding more about Jesus and who we are. So um, we're going to see this in like three quick steps, okay, here's what we're going to do. Um, we're not going to go through and preach a whole other sermon, although there's some, like, some things that we've got to pull out of chapters 6, verse 30 through 44, which is, why did Jesus feed the 5,000? So we don't want to answer that question. And then why did Jesus walk on the sea, which is contained in verses 45 through 52? And then we're going to look at what's the connection between these two. And the reason we have to do this is when you really read Mark's gospel, which I would encourage you to read along with us. We have a reading plan up on our website. So before you come here on Sundays, you can see what passage we're going to be and read through that. But Mark, again, moves so quickly, right? In fact, as we open up um, right in verse 45, he uses that catchphrase of his immediately. So, so it's hard in Mark's gospel because he doesn't have many transitions from story to story. He just goes from story to story to story. And he's meant 
for us to, to really feel the connective tissue between all of these stories. So we've got to go back in order to understand what's today. Let me pray one more time, and, and uh, we'll get into this. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that as your people, we come into your presence. God, you are concerned about this gathering, this communion of, of your saints today, of your people that you have formed through the good work of your gospel. And so today, God, may we come in humility, um, in, in boldness and humility, ready to receive your gospel to our hearts this morning, ready to worship you in boldness, uh, with courage that we get to stand before the living God and, and you no longer see us as condemned, but you welcome us as righteous because you welcome your son Jesus as righteous. And we thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. So let's do this. Let's go back and look at that story real quick. And I'm not going to exposit everything. We're going to look at a few things and see why their understanding of the story about the loaves might have been confused and led them astounded. So really, when you look at that story, I mean, that feeding of the 5,000, it's really one of the greatest miracles in Jesus's earthly ministry. It's actually the only miracle that's found in all four gospels. So again, we've got the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then we've got John's gospel. John's gospel stands wholly apart from those in that it contains almost like 95% original material. So it's unique that John would choose to tell out of all the stories that are shared amongst the synoptic gospels, this story also. So it's meant to be significant. And I want us to look at it this morning here on a couple different levels as we kind of get through the feeding of the 5,000 to really get to this walking on the water story. So first, like, we just need to understand, like, what's the reality of, of what happened here? We need to kind of gain some comprehension. And so if you don't know the story, if you weren't here last week, we're just going to walk through that story again and see how it unfolds. And then second, there's something that Mark wants us to know that's very significant about Jesus from this story. And it's the thing that the disciples missed, even though they should have caught it, that would have really, like, cause them to gain a deeper understanding of what happens when Jesus walks on the water. And so we're going to see kind of what the main point of that story was too. So starting with the story, the story picks up in verse 30, and the disciples have returned to Jesus um, after being sent out, right? So Jesus sends them out, and now they're coming back. They had been in Nazareth with Jesus, and, and now they are sent out in verse, back in verse 7, right? And so then they come back to Jesus in verse 30, and they begin downloading to Jesus all the crazy things that they had done and seen and the things that they had taught. Because remember, Jesus sends them out on mission, like underprepared, under-resourced, not equipped at all. Um, he sends them out to go and preach the gospel and do these miracles. And so now they're coming back to give like mission success, like what's the report? How did this go? And so they, they come back to Jesus and then Jesus tells them, after this experience that they should go away and get some rest because it was taxing on them. So, so we're meant to understand this from this story that Jesus, because of the sending out of the disciples into, he, he, his, his, once again, his popularity, his fame is on the rise. It's growing. And the disciples had spread the news of Jesus in the surrounding area in Galilee. And, and so much so that Mark says in verse 31, for many were coming and going. And so we're meant to see this as like, like a busy season of ministry for Jesus and his disciples. They're active. Um, they're really gaining traction in Galilee. 
And it says, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And so they're so busy and so excited about the things that had happened that they don't even take time to pause and eat. So Jesus says, hey, you need to take care of yourselves, right? Like, stop rest, get some food, like reconnect with God, like that's going to be important. So they, they jump in the boat together and they head over to like a more desolate place, right? And when we hear that phrase, desolate place, uh, in the story, it's used three times throughout that story. It simply means this, like wilderness, right? And so we don't exactly know where they were, but most educated guesses say that it was likely somewhere in the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And so they had stayed close enough to the shore after Jesus sends them out because Mark tells us that the crowd could see them from the shoreline and the crowds like all run on foot to where they had headed. So by the time that Jesus and his disciples get to this desolate place, there was a crowd of people already there waiting for them. And then in verse 34, Mark says that when Jesus went ashore, he saw this great crowd. And when Jesus sees them, Mark verse 34 says, when he went out ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So that's a key passage from this previous story. And Jesus was teaching the days were getting later, and the disciples, like, they're just good, practical folks that they are. They, they come to Jesus and say, hey, there's a lot of people out there. Like, we've, we've gathered a large crowd, so we should probably now send them away so they can go and buy some food for themselves because we don't have enough, right? That's a reasonable idea. Like, there's an, there's an etiquette at play here, and it still operates today, which is if you're going to have like an event during mealtimes, you should probably feed people some food, right? Our neighbors yesterday had a party for one of their daughters. It started at three. I don't think it got over until three. Um, and I came, the time that I came into the party was the perfect time because our neighbor Andre was serving his like Jalisco style barbecued short ribs. And so I just walked over after a long day on the bike and, and Andre was like, here, take some short ribs, right? But they got it. They nailed it. They understood. We're having our daughter's birthday party. It's around mealtime. So let's serve some food, right? So we just, I got to see that take place yesterday. So that's just what you do. You offer some kind of food. It's a good instinct for the disciples to want to feed this large crowd. The problem is there's like over 5,000 people and the disciples know we can't handle that. We don't have that type of food readily available, nor, nor did anybody really. So, so their conclusion is like, let's send them away. But Jesus tells them, no, like you've got to give them something to eat. So the disciples get a little, little snarky with Jesus. In verse 37, they say, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? So some of that, of course, is a little bit lost on us. 200 denarii was like 200 days worth of wages. So it's like eight months of work. So for us, right, I mean, we gotta got to figure that out. It's like Jesus saying like, hey, take at least almost a year of your salary, right, and go and buy some bread and give it out, which is like, you know, like that's a sarcastic question on their part. They're saying like, what are we supposed to do? Like take everything that we have and go buy all these people food. But Jesus comes back to them and says like, well, well what do we have right now? Like, how many loaves do we have? Like, go and see. So they come back with five loaves and two fish. They're like, this is it. This is all we have. It's not a lot. But Jesus commands everyone to, like, sit down then in groups by, like, hundreds, right? Because there's, like, 5,000 people. So, like, 100 people sit down here. 50 people sit down here. And then he prays. Again, a couple loaves of bread, a couple fish. He prays. 
And then he gives thanks for the food. And then the disciples begin to distribute that meager amount of food. And there's enough and it keeps going, right? There's so much food that it says that everybody ate till they got their full. Like they were satisfied. And the food even ran over. Like there was leftovers after this little meager amount of food. And it filled like 12 baskets full. So, so 5,000 people, five loaves, two fishes, and there were 12 baskets of leftovers it's a miracle. Like, this is a miracle. Like, we have to acknowledge that Jesus just did a miracle. It's not about crowd management. It's not about the disciples, like, reluctance to do this. This story is not even about Jesus defying the laws of nature. The point of this story is what Jesus does when he looks into a crowd of lost people, right? Jesus looks into a crowd of confused, hurt, hungry people, and what does he do? Does he turn them away? No, he has compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And Mark wants us to get what's happening here in this story. There's something so important, and it's this idea, this word picture, this image of a shepherd and their sheep. And that, that, that picture, that word image, would have not been lost on his disciples. They would have got, because that's a word picture that's painted all throughout the scriptures. It's a word picture of God and how he primarily chooses to relate to his people, which is that he is a shepherd who shepherds his people. If we go back to the Old Testament, one place we can find that is in the book, um, this prophet Ezekiel, and, and he says this in chapter 34. We're going to look at verses 11 through 13. We're going to skip 14 and then look at 15. So here's how this sounds as a whole, right? And this is Ezekiel, who, who in fact wasn't actually a, a, a prophet, but a priest, but he's serving during a time of captivity, and he's serving as a prophet, and he, and he says this. This is a message from God that then he speaks to God's people while they're in captivity, right? So think about the meaning of this. They're not, a, they're not in their home. They're, they're dragged away. He says, for, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep, I will seek them out, right? And that should start giving all sorts of clues to like stories in John, like the shepherd's gonna, gonna leave and, and seek out the sheep, right? As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness, and I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the country. So we have this great declaration that, that this shepherd, this good shepherd, will leave the place that he is and go out and seek his lost sheep who have been scattered across the face of the earth, and I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will make, or I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. Okay, so who does God say is the shepherd of his people? It's God himself, right? So in the Old Testament, God talks about his relationship to his people. And one of the primary ways, again, that he chooses to do that is as a shepherd caring for his sheep. We got a lot of father imagery there too. And then, so, so, so the people listening to this story probably wouldn't have passed by the significance of what that meant. But the disciples did. 
They didn't get it, right? The, the disciples said that they're confused about what Jesus is doing here. They don't get the picture that, that, that he's trying to paint. So let's flip to King David, right? We should know who King David is. King David was king over Israel, and through David, God comes to him and promises through a prophet that through David, he will sit on the throne of Israel, like one will sit on the throne of Israel. One of his descendants will be king forever. And so then King David shows us more of what this looks like in this story that he kind of writes in Psalm 23. He begins just right out of the gate in verse 1. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, right? So that's King David, who's king of a very powerful nation, identifying himself as one of the sheep, right? And he said that, that my God, that Adonai, is, is my shepherd. And he relates to me primarily as a shepherd would relate to a sheep. How does he do that? Well, I shall not want. And he makes me to lie down in green pastures. That's significant because look at what happens here in this story in Mark chapter 6, right? Jesus sees the crowd of people, thousands of people swarming throughout this field. They're people, and he says, they're like people, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And then look at verse 39. And then he commands them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Right? So in the story of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is hearkening back to this psalm of David where he will make his people to lie down in green pastures. And now Jesus standing before the people saying, you shall not want, why don't you take a seat in this green pasture, right? Like, do you see what's happening? Do you see what Jesus is doing in this story? Psalm 23 goes on and says, David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What would we instantly associate with a table as it's being prepared? food and provision, right? So you're going to feed me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And then Mark 6 verse 42 says, and they all ate. So King Jesus, the good shepherd, has prepared a table for his people. They shall not want. He's going to provide for his creation. So they all eat and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full. You see, in the Old Testament, God is the shepherd of his people, and his goodness to his people is a goodness that overflows from who he is, from his very character, from his very nature. And so when Jesus feeds the 5,000, because he has no choice but to operate as God, because that's who he is, he is declaring in that story that he is the good shepherd of Israel, and because he's the good shepherd of Israel, he is in fact who? He's God, right? Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the shepherd of his people, and he has compassion on them, and he is good to his people, and he is so good to his people that it overflows out of the heart of his goodness. That's why we're supposed to see here in this story. It's what the disciples miss. That's why Jesus feeds the 5,000. So why does he walk on the sea? Which is our second question, right? So Jesus now walks on the sea. This is verse 45 through 52. And so let's again, let's just do this. Let's just see how the story happened. And then we're going to slow down to see what, what it's really telling them and telling us about Jesus. 
So we kick it off, verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. So Jesus then like, tells the crowd after he feeds them, he dismisses them, and he tells his disciples to get in the boat and to go now to the other side. So in Mark's gospel, like, it's just back and forth. Like, if you get seasick, like, Mark's gospel is tough, right? Because it's a lot of, like, back and forth over the sea. So now they're going back to the other side. So they'd been on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, and then Jesus tells them to go to the other side, to Bethsaida, which is kind of in the northeast, right? So the disciples obey him. They leave in a boat once again. It's during the day. It's still light outside, but then Jesus doesn't get in the boat with them, right? He, he leaves on foot, and what does he do? He goes up to a mountainside to pray. So then in verse 47, it's nighttime now. It's dark, and Jesus is not with them. They're still crossing the sea. And it says, and when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. So the disciples are on the boat, Jesus is on the land. And then in verse 48, Mark says that Jesus knew the disciples were struggling. So look at this, it says, and when he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, he meant to pass by them. So, um, so it's kind of weird, like as Mark saying that Jesus was like trying to sneak by them on the water, but then they see him, what's going on? So in the NIV, specifically that part, because Mark says that it's a translated a little weird here in the ESV, which is we're making headway painfully. The NIV says this, the disciples were straining at the oar, so it gets across like a little bit more of the physical struggle that they were going at. So we're just meant to see that, that they're met with so much wind resistance that they're like stopped dead in their tracks, like the headwind is so strong, right? Now keep in mind, this is a group of experienced fishermen. They'd been out on this sea, this is, their, this is like their home stomping grounds, and so no doubt they would have experienced like things like this before. And so they're struggling with the headwind. There's this brewing storm. It's about the fourth watch of the night, which we don't even know what that means. It means 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. We should start talking like that, like fourth watch, fifth watch. And it says this, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. And when they see him, they're like, yeah, perfectly normal thing to see. Like, we see this all the time out here in the Sea of Galilee, just people walking across the sea, right? No, not at all. They see him walking on the sea, and it says they're terrified, right? They think he's a ghost. Nobody's seen this before. There's no way to explain this away. And, and again, there, there, there's experienced fishermen in this group, right? They had been in storms on the Sea of Galilee. We see that back in chapter 4, right? But never had they seen a person walking on the water, because nobody had ever done it before. But then Jesus then speaks to them, and he tells them, like, hey, don't, don't freak out. Don't be afraid. And apparently, that's when they recognize him, right? They, they don't recognize his figure, but they hear his voice, which is significant, and they recognize him because they hear the voice of their good shepherd. And what do we know about sheep? They recognize the voice of their shepherd. And then Jesus gets in the boat, the wind ceases, the disciples are stunned, and they're like, what is happening? Well, well that's how the story unfolds, right? And, and, it, and it means something. Jesus in this story is saying something very important about who he is, and Mark wants us to get it. And that's the main point here, right? So there are two kind of key allusions from the Old Testament that, that really shows us this. So you've got to keep in mind, 
if we disconnect 30 through 44, we miss this like story that Mark is framing up for us that Jesus is now telling and building out. And he's actually just rehearsing a story from the Old Testament. He's rehearsing the Old Testament in front of them. And he's showing the connective tissue between him and the promises of the Messiah in the entirety of the Old Testament. So we've got to understand kind of what he's doing here. So there's, now there's these two illusions, which we can't separate out from verse 30 and 44, because again, our understanding of this story will have to come through the lens of the disciples' misunderstanding of what happened in 30 and 44, which is Jesus building out a case that he is in fact the good shepherd. He is God, right? So verse 48, Mark says this, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. And of course, it's a little confusing at first. Like if, if Jesus is coming to the disciples, like he's coming to protect them, he's the good shepherd that wants to come and speak peace to them. Why is he intending to pass them by? How do, how do these two things go together, right? Jesus walking on the sea and passing by his disciples. What's that about? Well, anybody read the book of Job recently, right? Fantastic book. If you, it's, a, it's one of the longer books in the Old Testament. If you haven't read it, it's about this man named Job, and he goes through some of the most like insane suffering imaginable, right? And, and the wonder and the beauty of the book of Job is, is Job's relationship with God through his suffering. And he begins to ask all of these deep questions. He's experiencing this dark night of the soul, and all of these questions begin to rise to the surface. And, and several times throughout the book, we get to see this happen for Job, right? We get to hear him pray. So he's communicating with God. And so we hear him pray. And we get to, we get to eavesdrop on these dialogues that Job has with God. And they're, like, they're unlike anything else anywhere in the Bible, right? And so Job is speaking from a position of pain and suffering and brokenness and heartache but he's doing that in faith and humility. And he's trying to make sense of this God who he knows is sovereign over everything. And in one of these places, in, in Job chapter 9, Job says something so amazing. Like, I want you to see this, right? So Job is speaking to his friends. Job 9, we're going to look at 1 through 12. He says, Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that, this, that it is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contact or contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? So Job here is grappling here with the power of God, the sovereignty of God, the, like, the, 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 the fact that God knows everything, that God's everywhere, that he that he's, has power and authority over everything but that also God is free, right? So this is the God who in verse five, Job says, he removes mountains and then, and they know it not. So this is speaking to the power of God when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. We're supposed to be getting this picture of this amazing, powerful God who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, 
but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? So, so Job is saying here that, that God is mighty, that God is sovereign, and that God is free. He's so free that he is like incomprehensible to man. God is nothing like us. His wisdom is beyond our wisdom. It's beyond comparison. He can move mountains and they don't even know it. He can shake the earth. He can obscure the sun. He arrays the heavens in its splendor and he tramples over the waves of the sea, which, which means God doesn't operate within our man-made categories of understanding. He's, he's not a subject to be mastered. In fact, we would never know anything about this God unless he makes himself known. He is so big and we are so small that we can't even really scrutinize him. We can't examine him. We can't fully understand him, not unless he comes down and tells us who he is. God, what are you doing, right? So this is one of the most foundational things that we know, need to know about God. It's that he is so completely unknowable and unapproachable in his otherness, in his holiness, that we don't have any chance of knowing anything about him unless he chooses to reveal himself to us. So Job says in verse 8 that he tramples down the waves of the sea. And actually, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint. It's what Mark would have read. That phrase in verse 8 is literally, you ready for it? You're sitting down. He walks upon the sea as upon dry land. So Job has this illusion of the God of the universe, who's all-powerful, all-knowing, trampling the sea, walking upon the sea, and passing by, right? So Job 8, in verse 8, says that God walks upon the sea of the dry land, and then verse 11 says, behold, he passes me by, I see him not. Like, do I, like, we, you get it, right? Like, it's crazy what's happening here as this unfolds. In Mark chapter 6, the disciples are out on a boat, it's the dark of night, and in verse 48, he came to them, walking on the sea and passing them by. And they don't recognize him, and they're terrified. Like, so we have to see what's going on here. Mark wants us to know, in no uncertain terms, that Jesus is the good shepherd. He is God. He is Yahweh who shepherds his people in compassion and provides for them. And then he wants us to know that Jesus is the same sovereign God who flung all of this into existence, who tramples the sea, who comes walking on the sea and passes by. He's the free God of Job chapter 9. He is the God that is so above us, that is so different from us, and yet he has been with his disciples and he's a man just like them. The God beyond our comprehension is making himself known in the person of Jesus to all of creation. That's what's happening here. And the central place in the Old Testament where we see God choosing to reveal himself to a, to a people he's about to form, and we looked at this starting, I think, back in January, is Exodus chapter 3 in the burning bush, right? And we see Moses. Where's Moses, right? All the connective pieces. Moses is in a desolate place. He's in the wilderness, right? And there's this epic theophany, which just means God showing himself or revealing himself. God comes to Moses to reveal himself 
to him in a burning bush, and he speaks to Moses, and he calls out to lead Israel out of slavery in Egypt. We walked through that story back in the winter, and, and what makes this so special is this question that Moses says back to God, right? And, and we find it in, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, and, and Moses is like, okay, so listen, if, if, if I got to go tell all of these people, like my people, that, that God, the God of their fathers, right, has, has sent me, and, and they ask me, like, who is this? Like, what's your name? Like, what do I say? What, what is your name? And, and God is about to tell Moses his name. That's why this is such a significant story. In Exodus 3, 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am who I am, or I am has sent me to you, right? So, so God's saying this, Moses, I'm going to reveal myself to you. I'm going to tell you who I am, and who I am is I am who I am, which is not a great definition, right? You're like, you're going to tell me who you are, and you're just going to say, I am who I am, right? So the Hebrew verb there is hayah, and it's used, and it's meant to be this verb that says to be, right? So in God's name, I am who I am. He's saying to be. I am the God to be, right? It's where we get Yahweh from. I am the God who is. I am the God who is there. I am the God who is here, and I'm revealing myself to you, Moses, and I'm sending you now. And now in Mark chapter 6, the disciples see Jesus walking on the sea. They don't recognize him. They're terrified. But then in verse 50, immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. And, and, and guess what Greek word that he uses there? It's ego am I. It's this phrase that means I am. So here's how this goes. Take heart, it is to be, or it is, I am who I am. So in that moment, when Jesus' disciples are confused about what's happening because he's walking on water, which is a category that they have no definition for, they've never seen in their mind, and they're confused about what's happening right now in that story before them because they're incredibly confused about what happened in the feeding of the 5,000. Does that all make sense? Jesus has been painting this word picture for him that he's the good shepherd, that he's the free God of Job. And then he shows up and he says, hey, remember that story that you know so well. It's your freedom story. It's the story that forms you as a people. It's the story of Yahweh showing up to your great deliverer, Moses, who freed you from bondage. And then God formed you as a people through that story. And remember what God said, who God said his name is to Moses, I am to be. And then Jesus shows up in the midst of this terrible headwind, freaks his disciples out as the good shepherd, and says, oh wait, take heart. Take heart, because I am is standing before you. So take heart, disciples, because I am the God who is. I am the God who is there, who is here, and I am now choosing to reveal myself as Yahweh before you, right? So do you get it, disciples? This is your God. Jesus is Yahweh. He is the God of Job chapter 9 who walks upon the seas and passes us by, surpassing our understanding. He is that God. The same God who in Exodus chapter 3 reveals himself to Moses as the great I am. The God who is there. Jesus is that God. The sovereign and free God 
who reveals himself to his people on his terms. But they, they didn't see it. They were utterly astonished. They were confused. Why? Why don't they get this revelation from God? Why don't they understand this, who Jesus is? It's because they didn't understand why Jesus fed the 5,000. That's what it says in verse 52. They're not understanding any of this because they don't understand what Jesus was doing there, which means now we're back to like our original observation, which is this. The disciples were utterly astounded by Jesus walking on the sea because they didn't understand the meaning of Jesus feeding the 5,000. So what's the connection between the two? So we started this observation of verse 52, and and now we're ending back here again, and, and we can say like a little bit more about that connection. In general, I think the main issue is that the disciples are not able to grasp the full identity of Jesus yet, right? They don't understand that, I mean, that yes, they, they get this. They, they understand that when Jesus showed up, he has this ability to teach like nobody else. They've ever, like, they understand that he's a great teacher, right? They even understand that, that he's the Messiah, but they don't fully get the implications of that. Like in both of these events, Jesus is showing himself, revealing himself to be Yahweh, but the disciples miss it. That's what's happening overall. But I think there's something more particular like of an issue going on here. And I think we can learn something here. It's the connection between these two events. And I'm going to try to paraphrase it like this, right? And you can write this down. Jesus shows himself to be the sovereign free God who reveals himself on his terms resulting in complete confusion for the disciples because they didn't understand that Jesus is the shepherd who has compassion on his people. So if we slow down in verse 52, we see the disciples can't comprehend Jesus in his power because they can't comprehend Jesus in his mercy. And and there's something here for us because I think we can run into the same problem, like power and mercy and like how does that how does that work how do you uphold those two things together so for some of us these two truths are some of the earliest things that we learn about God it's that God is both great and that God is good that God is both powerful and that he's good it's the basic truth about God many of us know that or we've heard that but it's still one of the hardest things to comprehend and understand and, and really sometimes just believe that God is both powerful and great and good. And we have to hold them both together without resolving the tension of how that can be. They're both true, and it couldn't be any other way. The goodness of God without his greatness, right? The power of God without his mercy makes him just a divine well-wisher, and that doesn't help us. But the greatness of God, the power of God without his mercy and his goodness means we could be crushed, right, underneath the weight of his power because, because we don't know what he's going to do with all that power. And power scares us. Authority scares us. A, a God who is only sovereign and free, like, terrifies us. What will he do with all of that power? He moves mountains. He shakes the earth. He walks on the sea. He's in control of all of it. He does whatever he pleases. Everything that exists must bow down to this God. Should cause us to ask, what's he going to do with all of that power? What does God choose to do in these stories is he chooses to have compassion on them because he's good. You see, this, this, this whole story, this whole thing that we see, what did Jesus do with that power, right? And we're going to see this unfold in Mark's gospel as we get to the end. Jesus, this is what he does with all of this power. Jesus knowing, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, And that he had 
come from God and that he was going back to God the Father, knowing he had all of that power, what did he choose to do in those very last moments of his life as he was sitting with his disciples over like the last meal that they would share together? What does Jesus do with all of that infinite power? Well, he gets up from that meal and he laid aside his outer garments and he takes a towel and he ties it around his waist and with all of the power, infinite power of the God of the universe, he chooses to take that power and wash the feet of his disciples. And then on Friday at noon, with all of that power, he took upon himself the sins of the world, and he went to the cross, and he died. With all of that power, he suffered in the place of sinners. He suffered for you. He absorbed the wrath of God that we deserve. And so Jesus was dead, and then he was buried. And then on the third day, with all of that power, he rose from the dead, and he is alive right now. Jesus now is alive. He's sovereign. He's free. He's full of power, and he's good, and he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And his cross proves, and his resurrection proves that this is true, that he is both great and good. He's full of power and full of mercy, and he has compassion as the good shepherd on his sheep, and he feeds them, and he calls them back, and he tends to them by his broken body and his shed blood. Jesus feeds his sheep, and this morning he's prepared a table for us as a symbol of that. The bread that represents Jesus' body, which was broken for us on the cross. The cup that represents Jesus' blood that was poured out for us on the cross. And each Sunday when we receive the bread and the cup, we are remembering what he has done for us. We are celebrating that he is our good shepherd filled with righteous power and merciful compassion. We are symbolizing our union with him by faith when we take the cup and we take the bread and we are confessing indeed that he is great and that he is good and that his cross and his resurrection prove that. So this morning, if that is your confession, if Jesus, if you've submitted to Jesus as your righteous reigning king, and you've come under the provision of your good shepherd, we invite you to respond by going to the table and feasting and eating and drinking and celebrating our good shepherd.